be this evening in our study. Actually, we'll probably just really be focusing on one of these verses as we dealt with verse 5 on last week, or actually the week before, and then uh, looking at verse 6 this evening. But let's read verses 5 through 8 together. Jude writes, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels which kept not their first estate but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities." Uh, following his exerta- uh, Jude's exhortation in verse 3, as we looked at for several weeks um, some time back, his, his exhortation to earnestly contend for the faith, Jude provides the reason for the urgency whenever he writes again and says, just to bring you, uh, remind you again of, of where we are in this portion of the, of the, of the epistle, uh, Jude had said that he had uh, given all diligence to write unto them, verse 3, concerning uh, the common salvation. However, he said, it was needful for me to write unto you uh, that you earnestly contend for the faith. And so earnestly contending for the faith is, again, we spent weeks dealing with that statement or that verse concerning what this entails and how that we are, of course, to be, uh, we are to be defenders of the faith in the sense that we are to answers to the questions, as Peter writes, concerning apologetics. And every man uh, an answer that asketh of the reason of the hope that is within us. So that's apologetics by definition, and that we are defending uh, that faith upon which we've been rooted and grounded, how we are to engage the faith. Of course, we are to understand and give ourselves over to the understanding of that which was once delivered unto the saints, as uh, Jude explains. And of course, this faith, it, it, the definite article, the is used, that we are earn- to earnestly contend for the faith, not a faith, not a version of faith. No, it's the faith, which was once, one time and for all times given unto the saints. And so we've been handed, this has been handed down to us. And again, I, I want to point out to you, this is, I believe, worthy of our, our inspiration, that when Jude writes concerning the faith, when Paul writes concerning in Philippians how that we are uh, striving together for the fellowship uh, of the faith of the gospel or for the faith of the gospel we are striving together, that they do not then give a list of four or five or six or seven uh, elements of this faith to define that faith, but rather it is the teachings of Christ, that which Christ has taught, the disciples handed down. Uh, remember, whenever the disciples or the apostles preached, even after the ascension of Christ, they continued in the ministry of Christ and the message of Christ, declaring the truth of Christ, who he is, he declared himself to be, and of course the work which he had accomplished in Redemption, and so this is the faith. It has to do with, the, of course, the teaching of the. This is the 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 fundamentals, as it's been called, if you will, are the tenets of the faith or the non-negotiables of the faith. There are certain aspects of the teaching which are black and white, very clear, and of course, those are which we understand to be handed down to us in no uncertain terms. This is exactly what it is, and so we embrace that teaching. Now, again, there are many. Of gray areas in Scripture, without question, how many would refute that or want to argue against that? The fact of the matter is, there are many things that are not clearly stated in Scripture. Many things that we 
uh, hold to that we, we continue to look into in the Scriptures and come to a greater understanding. But they, again, then there are these non-negotiables. There are these absolutes. Uh, Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus Christ came in the flesh. He physically, literally died. He physically was buried. He physically rose again. And physically, in a glorified body, ascended unto the Father. These are absolutes. These are, these are non-negotiables. This is what salvation consists of. Believing, when saying we believe, not just saying we acknowledge it in the sense of an intellectual understanding of it alone, but that we are totally trusting, again, the very word belief in Scripture concerning salvation is an entitled, or is an, 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 it is to entirely commit one's spiritual or trust one's spiritual well-being to the Lord Jesus Christ. So in other words, our entire eternity hinges on the truth of who Jesus says he is and what Scripture declare about who he is. This is the faith. That's what the faith is. And so we've seen that. But yet there's an urgency, as he gets in verse, comes to verse 3 and says, I wanted to write unto you concerning the common salvation. This common not meaning casual, but he's saying common in the... It is the same salvation that every single person who's come to faith in Christ has received. We are all equal in this salvation us. It's that which gives us common ground, the common bond. That's what he speaks of. He goes on to say that he wanted to write concerning that, yet it was needful for me to write unto you that you earnestly contend for the faith. So here's the urgency that Jude provides. In verse 4, he then explained why there was this sense of urgency. He says, for there are certain crept in unawares, in other words, they came under the radar, so to speak, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So here he's saying that they turn the grace of God into lasciviousness, which again is licentiousness, which comes from the word licentia, which means freedom, and which we derive our word license. And so when you boil all this down, what you come to is that these were men who had come into the church, or even risen within the church, and they were declaring that grace is a license to sin. That grace provides freedom for you to sin. And Scripture goes on to say, denying the, the God. And of course, this is an absolute denial of the Lordship of Jesus Christ if you view grace as a license or freedom to sin because that is perverting the entire purpose for which Jesus came and died in delivering us from sin that we might live in righteousness unto the glory. And so it's imperative that we recognize this truth that, that this is a denial of the lordship of Christ as Jude explained. So for one to live in unrighteousness while using grace as an excuse for and to sin is to ultimately live in denial of the lordship of Jesus Christ. And it's, again, to pervert the very purpose of the grace for which God, this grace God has given us. A couple of weeks ago, we began to consider the three historical warnings then in verses 5, 6, and 7 concerning the dangers of unbelief are being deceived teaching. In verse 5, it provides the example of Israel's exodus or deliverance from Egypt. In verse 6, Jude provides the example of the fallen angels, which we'll look into this evening. In verse 7, Jude provides the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. And although God has once and for all delivered the faith unto believers, there is a distinct difference between possessing a knowledge of the truth and living in the truth. And it was for this reason that Jude urged believers to contend for faith. Jude begins these examples of warning with a reminder in verse 5. He says, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this. Now, Jude is reminding the reader of the importance to remain 
uh, fervent in the faith and to not forget the examples and the end of those who had come before them. Each of these examples which Jude provides includes distinct elements of which the reader is to heed. Number one, again, verse five, Israel's exodus is a reminder of the danger of apathy. And we've already looked into this a, a couple of weeks back. He goes on in verse five to say, I put you in this, into remembrance of these things, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believe not. When we are not intentionally fervent concerning the faith, apathy and complacency are certainly to become a problem. And it's easy to become comfortable where we are. Yet such apathy is extremely dangerous in the life of the believer. Simon Peter also provides such a reminder in 2 Peter three seventeen and 18. He writes, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Notice Peter warns of this danger of falling into the error of the wicked, and he says you fall from your own steadfastness. But then verse 18, he gives there's, there's a, a, a contrastive conjunction that is used here, and he says, but, in other words, this is the antidote to falling into the error of the wicked. This is the antidote to the apathetic state in which you will find yourself. And here it is. Answer, but grow in grace and grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the answer to apathy, continually growing. And I mentioned a a week or two back, if you recall, I think even this past Sunday morning in Philippians, how that it is expected for an infant to grow. This is not something abnormal. It's not unusual for an infant to be born into the world and then to grow. As a matter of fact, if an infant does not grow, we consider that to be tragic. And there is a, a, a true problem that is present when a baby does not grow. And so when it comes to believers, however, when it comes to those who profess salvation, so often someone is growing, we look at that as though that is abnormal or this is some, uh, something that's not expected to be. But that is totally an, a perverted way of thinking. Just as we expect an infant to physically grow, so we also should expect that every believer in Jesus Christ is going to continually spiritually grow. And if growth is not present, there it is an evidence of one or two problems. Ultimately, it will result in the it will be evidence of this in the end. But it is either a result that there is a serious sickness, a health issue that is present, or it is evidence that there is no life present whatsoever. Therefore, there's no growth that is taking place. And so it's not uncommon or unusual for a believer to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's that which is expected. Paul warned of this apathy as well, and I believe in his letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13, we will not read all that tonight. But these were the people we see, according to even that passage throughout Scripture, the people that were being delivered in verse 5 mentioned Israel, were the people delivered from the bondage of the Egyptians, These were the people for whom God parted the Red Sea that they might walk on dry ground through the midst of the sea. These are the people who God had provided water to flow from that rock, which the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 10, that this rock was Christ and it followed them to sustain and satisfy them in their journey. These are also the people to whom the Lord provided manna daily for their sustenance. And yet these were the people who had not only seen, but as well experienced the very miracles of God We are told that the Lord, however, destroyed them that believe not. Now, imagine this for a moment. 
As Paul says in Romans 9, clearly, these were the people to whom God had given the prophets, the oracles of God had been given to them, the promises were made to them, the covenants were with them, if you will, and yet they are the very people who complained and murmured against, if you will, God's provision for them. They were pathetic towards God's working and God's provision for them, even in His deliverance and in Him sustaining them throughout the journey. If you remember in the wilderness, I mentioned this, I think, before, but the children of Israel said, oh, it would have been better to die in Egypt. Do you remember them saying that? It would have been better to die in Egypt than it would to be here. God had miraculously delivered them the bondage of Egypt was horrid. It was, it was terrible how that they were treated and abused by the Egyptians. And God then slew the Egyptians, the army and Pharaoh, in the Red Sea. He gave them water. He gave them manna. He protected them. He gave them a, a pillar of a, a fire at night and a cloud by day. Do you understand what's said there? Cooled and covered during the heat of the day and they were warmed in the cold of the night and led by God and yet still they were apathetic toward all that God had done for them. They were easy and quick, they easily and quickly forgot, if you will, where God had brought them from, what he had truly done. Well, tonight we continue to examine Jude's warning uh, provided in these verses of his epistle. And in verse 6 we read, and the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness under the judgment of the great day. We must remember that it was Israel to whom, again, had given all of this truth, all of his prophets, his word, his promises, his blessings, delivering them out of Egypt, and yet many of them still became apathetic towards God and his provision. And therefore, the warning is we must remain aware of the constant danger of becoming apathetic towards the Lord and his provision. Again, I, I don't want to belabor the point, but let me say this because I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, and I believe it's important to point out again. You say, well, we're not apathetic. I mean, we're at, we're at church, at Bible study on Wednesday night. We're committing our time to gather around the word of God and in fellowship with the people of God. So we're not apathetic. And I remind you, if you look, for example, and I'm not, and this is not an appeal to your emotions. This is not manipulation of your emotions. This is not placing guilt on you. It's an awareness. Again, I remind you, you can see online, you can pull it up and see where there are Christians who are in China who for the first time ever were able just to hold a copy of God's Word. Not even, And they wept profusely because they were just overwhelmed at the joy and that the privilege of just handling a copy of God's Word. Now, I'm not saying that every time you pick up your Bible, you should be weeping just because you're holding a copy of God's Word in your hand. But here's what I am saying. How quickly we are to become calloused and complacent or apathetic towards God's provision for us and taking for granted all that God has done for us and even murmuring or complaining because God doesn't give us what we want when He's given us everything that we need. And so there's a great danger in becoming apathetic and complacent. But then we see second, we move forward now in verse 6. And the second example Jude provides in these warnings is the fallen angels. And this in verse 6, again, the unholy angels, which serve as a reminder of the danger of discontentment. Look at verse 6. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness under the judgment of the great day. First, it's important that we, we answer this question. Who are these angels of which Jude speaks? Second, 
we must answer the question, what separated these angels from the other angels of which Scripture refers to as holy angels? And then third, once we understand who these fallen angels are and what separated them from the holy angels, then we must address the matter of which Jude speaks concerning these fallen angels and their discontentment. So who are these angels? First question to answer. Isaiah, in prophesying of Babylon's fall, he alludes to the fall of Satan. And Isaiah refers to Satan's fall in comparison to Babylon to emphasize the sudden and absolute destruction of a tyrannical king and kingdom of Babylon. Such a comparison is made due to the fall of Satan, which emphasizes God's absolute judgment on Satan and sin. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, and this is where the prophecy is given. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. Now here, of course, this is prophetic of Babylon falling and the kingdom falling. And, he, and Isaiah is prophesying of this. But notice the comparison that he uses, of course, is that, of course, which we obviously know of who filled with pride, being a created being, He's not always been. God created Satan, though he did not create him in the condition we find him today, or he is in today, yet still God created him nonetheless. And we know that Satan fell, of course. And this took place prior to man's fall in the garden, because, of course, we know Satan is the one who tempted Eve. And obviously, though sin had not yet affected the world, nor had it yet affected man, sin was already present in Satan and in the, those, in the demons, if you will, of hell itself. And so Satan comes and tempts even the Garden of Eden. Now, obviously, when Satan fell, there were as well angels which fell with him. In Ephesians, Paul exhorts the believers at Ephesus to appropriate God's provision in Jesus Christ and to stand against the enemy of God and the enemy of God's people. The enemy, Paul mentions, is not singular in number, but includes Satan and his demons. In Ephesians 6, 11, and 12, he says, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. This is a direct reference, of course, to not only physical principalities which ruled and rulers of, of wickedness in the sense of wicked rulers, but of course the spirit behind that, and of course, even those, as you know, for instance, to give you another example, in Jesus' earthly ministry, if you recall, he cast out devils, he cast out demons, those who were demon-possessed. That was the maniac of Gadara, if you recall. And when he approached him and asked him, he said, who art thou? Remember, he said, we are legion, which means that they were many, many demonic spirits. And the demons fell, if you will, with Satan also. So it's not just Satan alone, but also those who fell with him. The book of the Revelation refers to a war in heaven in which the dragon, Satan, and his angels are cast out. Revelation 12, 7 through 9. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. 
So we also know that Satan had been cast out of heaven prior to tempting Eve in the Garden of Eden. So although neither the world nor man had been impacted by sin, again, sin was already a reality due to Satan's rebellion. Several scriptures refer to these fallen angels, Matthew 25, 41, for instance. Then shall he say unto, also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Mark 1, 23-27. And there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone, what have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee, who thou art the one of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him, and they were all amazed, insomuch that they questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commandeth he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. Second Peter 2 4. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. And he's making a point, does God not also know how to reserve judgment for the wicked and as well to deliver the just or those who he's made righteous or declared righteous? Revelation sixteen thirteen and 14. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are, uh, they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. So what we see is simply this. We're asking, who are these angels? Who are these that, that Jude refers to that left their first habitation, their first state? Satan is not alone in his rebellion and his spiritual attack against the Lord and the Lord's people. There are unholy angels, there are unclean spirits, and there are the spirits of devils. There are these demons. There are those who fail with Satan. There are those who are cast out as was Satan. So then the next question, I told you, we have to identify who they are first, of course, because when you think about these angels who left their first state or their state of their habitation, this isn't talking about all the angels. This is a specific group or specific number, a specific uh, certain amount or, or, or certain group of angels which were fallen, which left their first estate, if we call them fallen, those who sinned. So the second question then to ask is this. I believe this is of the utmost importance, of the greatest importance. What separated these angels from the holy angels? So if Satan fell and there was a group of angels that fell with him who committed sin, why is it that they all being in the same condition, all of them created beings by God, all of them in heaven with God, all of them worshiping at some point God, all of them in the same condition, in the same situation, without sin being present? as it's understood to be today, obviously. And yet, there was a certain group which fell, and then there are those which did not fall. And I think it's a fair question to ask, why? Vented those which did not fall from falling or committing sin, or what prompted those which did fall in sin to do so? If all the angels created by God were in heaven with the Lord prior to the fall of Satan and beginning of sin, what is it that separates them or what distinction was there between those who fell and those who remain holy unto the Lord? Well, the holy angels are also referred to in 1 Timothy, and we're going to read the verse here, chapter 5, verse 21, as the elect angels. 
In 1 Timothy 5.21, Paul said, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. Now, this reference is not really about the angels themselves, but notice Paul still includes them in this charge. And in doing so, he refers to them as elect angels. Now, the adjective elect, it literally means chosen. These were chosen angels. So here's the point of the matter. The only thing that separated the angels that fell from the angels which did not fall is that God had chosen for these angels not to fall, else they all would have fallen. (laughs) They were elect angels, chosen by God to remain holy unto him. The obvious implication here is by the adjective elect is that of chosen, meaning chosen. So then the question is also to God chosen them. And again, the answer is quite obvious. God had literally chosen these angels to himself to remain holy unto him, unto his glory. And therefore, all those who were not elect angels fell in the rebellion with Satan. That's it. And by the way, notice, this is very interesting, is it not? Therefore, even the angels that did not fall, absolutely aware the only reason they did not fall is because God had chosen that they not fall. And hence, they receive no credit and no glory in not falling. But they must give all glory to their Creator that He them from this great fall in which there is no redemption. Last night in our theology class, we brought this up in dealing with this for a brief moment, but concerning our salvation, the scripture says, referring to the holy angels, the elect angels, that they desire to look into these things. Concerning our redemption, why is it such a bewilderment to them? One reason I believe it's such a bewilderment to them is because here you have some angels, the ones who are looking into this and wondering and beholding this great, marvelous work of God's redemption and providing his own son that he would be born into human flesh, manifesting himself in the likeness of sinful flesh without sin, and submissively die, sacrificially, substitutionarily, on our behalf, that we might be redeemed. But here's what you have to remember. These elect angels were preserved by God to not fall. All of humanity is fallen. And yet, for the angels which did fall, God provides no redemption. They are forever reserved unto everlasting judgment and the wrath of God. And yet, all of humanity falls, all of us. And God has provided redemption for us. So these elect angels are fully aware, I think absolutely without question, obviously, if Paul knows that they were chosen of God, then surely they know that they were chosen of God to not fall, but to remain preserved by the grace of God. Hence, God receives all the glory for their preservation. Just like with man, If we are redeemed, any man that is redeemed, we cannot boast of any part of our redemption 
but we give absolute glory and thanksgiving to God because he is the one who has redeemed us. And we know had God not divinely intervened on our behalf that we would have never chosen him. We would continue in rebellion against him as a fallen creature. But God divinely, graciously, mercifully has redeemed a man by in his providential working and plan. Then Jude's warning of the sin and discontentment is exemplified by these condemned angels. So who are they? Well, they're those who fell to sin with Satan. What, distinct, what distinction is there between them and the holy angels? The holy angels are elect of God, chosen by God to be preserved, whereas these were not, therefore they sinned. And then Jude's warning now concerning the fallen angels, these sinful angels. Verse 6, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness under the judgment of the great day. Do you see what's being said here? Again, there's no hope for them. There's no redemption for them. There's no provision made for them. No wonder the elect angels, no wonder the holy angels, again, desire to look into this great salvation when they consider the fact that God is reserved forever unto judgment those who fell to sin and that they would have been among them had God not preserved them from doing the same. These angels which kept not their first estate, they were not content with the position the Lord had given them. They were not content with the provision God had made for them. The result to such discontentment was eternally devastating. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, and then verse 9, it says, For if God spared not the angels at sin, we read this a moment ago, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, verse 9 says, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the, uh, the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. Now, of course, here we know that Peter has dealt much in his first epistle concerning suffering for the cause of Christ and persecution and such. And here Peter is reminding them in the second epistle, he says, don't forget, if God spared not the angels that sinned and then put them into everlasting judgment and reserved unto them, reserved them for everlasting judgment, do not think for one moment that God is not able to deliver the godly out of the temptations that are present. And furthermore, that those who look like they're getting by are not getting by at all, but the unjust will be reserved until the day of judgment. God is holy and God is just. And his justice is holy. And so he's saying no man's going to get by with this. Those who are not redeemed, of course, perish. Discontentment, if you think of it, is truly a sin that is rooted in thanklessness and pride. Discontentment, if you think of it in this form, we know this where we don't we don't speak in these terms very often in these days in which we live. We don't speak about being discontent a whole lot. But let me tell you what we do talk about entitlement. And you know what entitlement is? It's discontentment. It's believing we deserve something we don't deserve, believing something is owed that is not not being content where we are, but rather always wanting something more. Now think about this. God made his creation, he made the angels, he preserved some in his providence, obviously. Scripture teaches us this. We just saw it. But yet, those who were not preserved, they fell, and the reason they fell 
is because they were not content with their habitation. They were not content with their first state. Why did Satan fall? Because he said he would exalt himself above God, right? I will, I will be God. No, you won't. <laughs> and, and they were not content with where they were. Hear me, there is a danger even for believers to allow contentment to settle in, especially when we view others, whether it be in their ministry, in their lives, in how God has purposed to use them in comparison to maybe how or where God is using us. There is all types of discontentment, even spiritually speaking, not to mention the physical temptations that are present, such as they have more Facebook followers than I do, right? No, not really. But that mentality of someone is prospering more so than I am. And after all, I'm the one who's being faithful. I'm the one who's walking with God. Are you following? And this discontentment, listen, our contentment, let me remind you of this truth, because this is something you need to be reminded of. I need to be reminded of this all the time. We must keep this in the forefront of our of our minds and, and before us ever, forever, in realizing and recognizing this truth. The love of God has manifested and demonstrated Him giving His Son. And if you have received His Son, you are a recipient of His love. And what you have or what you do not have in this life in no way is a measuring stick for the measureless love of God which has been demonstrated in his son. I am loved of God in Jesus Christ. I am provided of God and by God in Jesus Christ. And therefore, he has given us, as Ephesians 1.3 says, so clearly, blessed be the God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. If we are truly living with an eternal perspective and a spiritual mindset, then we recognize that we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ. And yes, God blesses us physically. Yes, God provides for our needs. And yes, we go to the Lord for the needs that we physically have. And we ask the Lord to, we, we lay our petitions before him and we're commanded to do that. That in itself is not wrong. That's biblical to do so. But we must understand whatever the answer of the Lord is, in no way is a demonstration of how much he's loving us or how much he's displeased. He has loved us in his son. In his son. And we have received that love in Christ. And one's sense of entitlement is based in one's exalted view of oneself and one's pride. If I am discontent, then it's because I am not thankful as I should be. If I am discontent, because I am exalting myself above that which I should. If I am discontent, it's because I'm filled with pride. Was Satan not filled with pride? Of course he was. And so there's a discontentment to which we are to take warning. Remember the parable of the lost son? In the parable of the lost son, we see an example of discontentment which is manifested in the Son's unthankful attitude towards the provision of the Heavenly Father and his sense of pride or entitlement in demanding that which he believed he deserved despite the fact that it was not 
to truly belong to him until his father's death. In Luke 15, 11-13, we read, And he said, and had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divideth unto him his living, and not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. In the account of the, of the lost son, of course, we're told here that he says, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. Now, you have to understand something, too. He really was not supposed to receive this until his father's death. This would have been his inheritance, and he's demanding it now as though he deserves it now. And he says, give me. Now, the interesting truth here as well is later on when you read, he comes to his senses after he finds himself destitute. And as a Jew, obviously, he's about to, he, he would feign himself of eating of the husks that the pigs did eat, which of course is, is an abomination to even be caring for the pigs, not to mention eating that which they ate. And yet you see that his whole spirit completely is transformed and turned around when he once said in leaving, give me entitlement. Give me that that I deserve. Give me that that you owe me. Give me that which is mine. And by the way, it was not his yet. But he still says, give it to me. But then, it's not long after where instead of saying, give me that which you owe me, he says, I'll go back to my father and I will say to him, make me as one of your hired servants. There's a spirit of humility in contrast with the spirit of arrogance, pride, and entitlement or unthankfulness or thanklessness. In like manner, the angels of which Jude speaks, they were not thankful for their creator's blessing and positioning them with them in the heavens. They were filled with pride, thinking more was owed to them. And this is the crux of Jude's warning. Do not become discontent with God's provision, his blessings in Christ. Do not allow pride to take hold of your heart and cause you to begin to feel entitled as though you know what is better for you than your Lord does. Paul demonstrated the true spirit of contentment in his letter to the Philippians. Philippians 4, 11-13, very familiar passage of Scripture. Paul said, not that I speak in respect of want, because he speaks about how the Philippians had cared for them, they had provided for him when he was in need. He says, I'm not speaking about this as though I'm in need now. He says, but I've learned, for I've learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things which strengtheneth me. If you really want to know what this passage is saying, I've kind of underlined, I've told you this for years, you can underline in 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 verse 11 and then verse 13, you can underline three things and it gives you the gist of this entire passage of what Paul is emphasizing here. He says, I have learned in verse 11. Then he goes on at the end of verse 11 and says, to be content. And then in verse 13, he says, through Christ. And that is the message that Paul is conveying here. He says, I've learned to be content through Christ. Whether I am physically in need or whether I abound, I have learned to be content through Christ. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, I do not have a sense of entitlement. I have a, a spirit of gratefulness. And he is saying as well that my contentment is not hinged or based upon my physical circumstances. But it's in God's provision for me in Christ. The end of such a spirit of discontentment of which Jude warns in Jude verse 6 
is always detrimental. For the unbeliever, this attitude results in utter destruction, obviously, even as Peter alludes to. And for the believer, such a spirit and attitude results in forfeiture of the joy and blessing of abiding in the Father's will and purpose. Nonetheless, just as in the parable of the lost son, here's what you find. Just as, Remember, the parable of the lost son, by the way, it's not, people talk about the prodigal son, that's really not what this is. It's the lost son, and we say that specifically because Scripture says it, but also because it is one of three parables exemplifying one major truth in this, in Luke's 15th, uh, in, in the 15th chapter of Luke's gospel. And what you find is first there is a lost sheep. And there is a faithful shepherd who goes out to find his sheep. Then there is a lost coin. And there is a woman committed to turning her house upside down to find her coin. Not someone else's coin, the one that belonged to her, just like the sheep belonged to the shepherd. And then there is a lost son. And that lost son has a faithful father who is fattening a calf and looking down the road waiting for his son. So what we find in this, obviously, just as in the parable of the lost son, the father is faithful. The warnings of Jude are to be heeded as we examine ourselves concerning the faith which we claim. Yet for those who are in the faith, we can remain confident in the faithfulness of our Lord, for it is his faithfulness in which we have confidence. As Jude again concludes this entire epistle, I keep alluding to this throughout the epistle because it's of the utmost importance. He concludes it by stating, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. So who is it who keeps us? We don't keep ourselves, he keeps us. But we are to be, we are to heed the warnings as Jude gives, that of apathy and complacency, that of discontentment. Because here's the reality of it. We are all prone to these things, even as believers in Jesus Christ. We are prone to these sins. We are prone to become apathetic. We are prone to become complacent. We are prone to be discontent. No wonder the scriptures tell us time and again that. In everything, give thanks. For if we truly, genuinely have a thankfulness towards our Lord, understanding where we were, understanding where we are, the position we've been provided in Jesus Christ, God's tremendous provision for us in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, then how could we possibly genuinely be discontent? How could we possibly be apathetic when we as Israel, who was delivered out of the bondage of Egypt under the... Under the cruel, harsh taskmasters of Egypt under the slavery of Egypt, and yet God delivered them out from under this and set them free and provided for them all that they need. He didn't just let them go and say, now fend for yourself. He provided for them, and yet they became apathetic and complacent and discontented in his provision. If that is true of them, can that not also be true of us? And the answer is yes. So the warnings are here intentionally by Jude. And the last one, of course, is that of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we'll look into that, Lord willing, next week. But he gives the last warning here concerning uh, the matter. Now at first is, of course, apathy, discontentment. We'll move into, into Sodom and Gomorrah next week. But we find as well there's this progressive nature, if you will, that takes place when there's apathy and complacency, discontentment, and it continues on. 
We are to take heed, take warning, contend for the faith. But here's the reality of it. Let me, let me put this in perspective for you and I'm finished. Be aware of this truth. If we are apathetic and complacent, if we are not content in the position in which God has placed us, that provision he made for us in Jesus Christ, and as well where he's placed us in the ministry, where he's placed us in the stewardship of the gospel, whatever part that is that we may have, if we're not content in that, in Christ and in his provision and in his placement, in his providence and working in and through our lives, then let me ask you this question. How in the world could we possibly be prepared to ever contend for the faith when we're not embracing the faith itself and its purpose? Let's bow together in prayer. Father, thank you for your word.